Well, I'll say it again. A happy New Year to you all. And it's 2015. It sounds so futuristic that we're finally here in 2015. In fact, if you're a fan of the old Back to the Future movies like I am, then you'll know that 2015 is the year that Marty McFly traveled forward to in Back to the Future 2. And so we are in the future now. We're officially in the future. And we still don't have the hovering skateboards, but we're still in the future. Anyway, today we will be picking up where we left off last week in our discussion of money, specifically giving. Around Christmas and New Year's, I find it's a good time to take a short break from our ordinary course of events on Sunday morning. And normally on Sundays, we're going through the Gospel of Mark, verse by verse. But in Mark chapter 10, we hit the huge topic of of money and wealth. And Mark 10 gave us a slice of Christ's mind on the issue of money and, and giving. But the New Testament has so much more to say about it, so we're taking a little break from Mark for a few weeks, and we're studying further this topic of wealth, specifically at giving. And last week I started with a very special issue, something I've been meaning to preach on for some time, and it's the issue of tithing, specifically why you should not tithe. And if you weren't here last week, you heard me right, why you should not tithe. Now I can't get too bogged down with recap, but if you weren't here, you definitely want to get that sermon on our website. I'll give you the super short version to bring you back up to speed. Tithing refers to the practice of giving 10% of your income to God, to the church. And many Christians practice tithing, thinking they're doing what God wants them to do, what God has commanded for them to do. But in reality, they are not. I made the big claim last week that tithing is not for Christians today. First off, tithing today is nothing like it was back in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, people weren't giving 10% of their incomes. They were giving their crops, their harvest, their livestock. And it wasn't just 10%. There were multiple tithes. And you add them all together, they were giving upwards of 23% of what they made every year. Additionally, these tithes had a very specific purpose. They were given to support the Levites. They were the religious workers of Israel, the, the administrators of Israel's religious system. And these tithes, they were more like a religious tax. And so for that and many reasons, what what people do today by tithing is really nothing like what the Jews did in the Old Testament. But that's not even the main reason we don't practice tithing today. The main reason is that we're not Jews. We're not Israel. We don't live under the Old Covenant. We don't live under the Law of Moses. Tithing was a practice given to Israel under or in the Law of Moses. But now in Christ, we belong to the church, which comes with with the New Covenant, And with that covenant, a new law, which is called the law of Christ. The Old Testament, which corresponds to the Old Covenant, is still useful for us and profitable, like 2 Timothy 3.16 says. And that's why we don't cut the Old Testament out of our Bible. But since we don't live under the Old Covenant, we don't directly apply the Old Testament. And that includes tithing. There are many principles behind tithing that we would apply today, sure. But for our specific practice, we turn to the New Testament, which corresponds to the New Covenant. You know, that's why your Bible is split in half, by the way, Old and New Testament. The word testament in Old English meant covenant. And so these two books of the Bible, so to speak, Old and New Testament, correspond to Old and New Covenant. And so for us, we directly apply that New Testament. And so when you turn to the New Testament and you find out what it has to say about tithing, what do you find? What does the New Testament say about tithing? And the answer is nothing. 
There, there's nothing there. I mean, there's a couple of passages where Jesus mentioned tithing, and there's one in Hebrews 7 as well. But as we studied, that's still in reference to the Old Covenant practice. Nowhere does the New Testament describe or prescribe tithing as a practice for Christians. But for us, tithing is over. It's not for us. So like I claimed last week, tithing is not for Christians today. And if that's new to you, if that's still a bit shocking, if you weren't here last week, then just go on our website, download that sermon, you'll get the long version of that. Because I want you to see for yourself from Scripture why that's true. And that's what we did last week. A lot of people think it's normal, though. They think, well, it must be biblical. It seems like everyone does it, practices tithing. That being said, one little issue we didn't have time to talk about last week is, well, how did it get this way? I mean, if tithing is not biblical anymore, how did it come to be so widely accepted? If tithing isn't for today, how come pretty much everyone thinks it is, right? Well, tithing, it certainly is prevalent. I went to try and buy new offering envelopes for the church, and it's nearly impossible for me to find one that didn't say tithes on it. They're all, they're all said tithes and offerings. So how did it get this way? Well, one big reason most people get the Old Testament wrong, including tithing, is the widespread influence of Catholicism on the church, all throughout church history. Even today, a lot of Christians still carry Catholic baggage in either doctrine or practice. The early church, and right after Jesus' first few hundred years, they did not practice tithing at all. It didn't come until later when the Catholic Church rose to power in the Roman Empire and they changed some things. They adopted many practices straight out of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. For example, the whole Catholic priesthood is derived from the priesthood in the Old Testament. And the same thing goes with tithing. They created new church laws. They reinstituted tithing as a formal practice. So the Catholic Church is responsible for a lot of the misunderstanding and misapplication of the Old Testament. And whereas most Protestant churches, they reformed all those Catholic practices, tithing wasn't everywhere reformed. And and so we see it in a lot of even Christian churches today. They, They still don't get the Old Testament right. It still plagues many people. Another reason I think tithing has become so well accepted today is that there's not that many people who will speak against it. It does sound kind of pastorally suicidal to teach against tithing. I mean, why would you want, why would you want your people to not give 10%? That, that's way more than most people give anyway. So it seems like you're shooting yourself in the foot financially if you're preaching against tithing, and, and I guess in a way that might be true. But most preachers, especially the, the greedy ones on TV, they love tithing. They love promoting tithing because if you can get 10% out of people, that's a lot. That's a lot of money. And it's very easy to use passages like Malachi chapter 3, which we read last week, to guilt unsuspecting Christians into giving 10%. Otherwise, they feel like they're less than Christian or they're unsaved if they don't give 10%. Anyway, we could spend a lot of time talking about why tithing has become so popular, but just always remember to not confuse being popular with being right. There's a difference. And we want to test all things with Scripture And when it comes to tithing in the New Testament, it doesn't hold up anymore. Well, anyway, that's all a recap. It's time for us to move on. Although the New Testament has nothing to say about tithing, it still has plenty to say about giving. And that's what we want to turn our attention to now. 
If we're not told to tithe, well then what are we told to do? Are we free from giving? Are we still bound to give? Is it a requirement or is it just optional? What does the New Testament say about giving? What guidance is there for for us Christians? New Covenant, members of the church, what are we told to do? There are certainly different ways you can give now. There's a story of three friends discussing how they give money to God. The first guy says, well, I, I, I take my money, I draw a circle in the ground, I throw my money up in the air, and whatever lands in the circle, I give to God. The second guy says, no, no, what I do is I take my money, I draw a circle in the ground, I throw my money in the air, and whatever lands outside the circle, I give to God. The third guy says, no, you guys both have it wrong. I take my money, I throw it up in the air, and whatever God wants, he keeps. <laughs> now, I would have to advise against that method of giving. And thankfully, we're not left so clueless as to have to resort to throwing our money up in the air. We, we know a little bit more than that. God has given us plenty of instructions about giving, and he wants us to give in the right way for the right reasons. And so this morning, we're going to begin to uncover God's word on, on giving, specifically what, what the New Testament has to say for us directly about giving. Now, all that being said, it's going to be different, probably different than you've ever heard. If you've heard a, a sermon on giving before, the pastor usually rattles off, you know, 10 verses on giving, lots of do's and don'ts, very practical, sometimes even, um, you know, gimmicky. That's what most preachers do. It's not to say we won't get to the practical do's and don'ts, but I'm going to approach this probably differently than you've ever heard before because there, there's a much more fundamental issue that we need to deal with first before we even really get to giving. And we could jump right in and talk about why you should give, but I want to use this occasion to first try and broaden your horizons on the Christian life in general. More specifically, before we talk about why you should give, I want to help you think about why you do anything as a Christian. Have you ever thought about that before? Why do you do all the things you do as a Christian? Yeah, including giving, but but everything. Why do you do it? If you understand that question and you answer it correctly, then you will have the key for understanding what the New Testament says about giving. It'll become a no-brainer. It'll be very obvious why you should give and, and everything else. So I want you to, it's going to be a little different, but I want you to humor me for a little bit and follow along. Before we get to giving, I want to help you think through this question. Why do you do all the things you do as a Christian? Get that right, then we'll get to the long list of verses on giving in the New Testament. But they'll, they'll make perfect sense. They'll fall into place. They'll explain themselves. It'll be easy at that point. So here's how we're going to start. I want you to answer answer the question in your mind. No one's going to ask you, but in your own mind, why do you do it? Why do you do all the things you do as a Christian? And think about all the Christian rituals we have or practices. Every religion, every worldview comes with its practices. Catholics attend Mass. They go to confession. They pray special prayers with these beads. Muslims, they pray. They fast. They pray five times a day. And they go on pilgrimage. Buddhists, they practice meditation. They chant specific things. They they perform these symbolic hand gestures. And the list goes on. We Christians, we have our our practices, so to speak. We go to church on Sundays. We sing songs. We read the Bible. We pray. We take communion. We give money. 
list goes on. Why? Why do we do these things? What's the point? What's our motivation? Why do we do all the things that we do as Christians? Well, to get this started, I want you to think back to some of what we learned last week from the Old Testament, from the Law of Moses. Think back to Old Testament times. What was life like under the Old Covenant for for Jews in the Old Testament? Well, they certainly had a lot of commands to follow. 600 and, do you remember? 13, to be exact. That's a lot. The Jews lived heavily regulated lives. They had rules to follow about life, business, relationships, leisure. I mean, just you name it. They had a whole other set of sacrificial laws telling them what they had to do when they screwed up and broke the other laws. I mean, they, were, they lived very heavily regulated lives. And for many Jews, historically, life under the law of Moses was a huge burden. It's just a burden to live under that many laws and regulations. There's such a high, unsustainable standard, especially for the unregenerate person. The law just kept them from doing all the things they wanted to do, and it made them do a bunch of stuff they didn't want to do. And so it's just a burden. They came to resent the law. It's like with kids. Many little kids, they come to resent, even hate, their parents' laws or rules of the house. That the house rules represent all the things they don't want to do, but they must, and all the things they want to do, but they can't. They, they don't want to do chores. They want to play. They don't want to go to bed at 8. They want to stay up and watch TV. And they don't want to eat the veggies for dinner. They want to have candy all the time. I mean, you know the drill. Some kids, they try and rebel against these house rules, But hopefully if their parents are strict and strong, they don't get away with it. Their rebellion was met with some punishment. And so the kids learn, like, hey, when I act out, there's a form of judgment. I don't want that. So what do they do? Well, most eventually they fall in line. They obey. They become good little rule keepers. But deep down, they hate the rules. They hate the rules. They resent the laws of the house. Their obedience is only motivated by a fear of judgment. And consequences. It's an external compulsion. But if they were free to really do what their little hearts wanted to do, they would go wild. And this is why, as a side note, when these types of kids get to college, when there are no more house rules, they do go wild because they're just doing what they've always wanted to do. And they're no longer bound by the law. They're free from the laws of their parents. Anyway, if you understand that, you understand how many Jews lived in relation to God's Old Testament law. They viewed God's law as a real burden. It kept them from what they really wanted, their sinful heart desires. Some tried to rebel, but they were met with judgment. So over time, eventually, most fell in line. And the Jews became excellent law keepers. They were very obedient on the outside. But for most, it was only on the outside. It was due to external compulsion. Now, here's the problem with that. God is not only interested in your obedience. And he certainly is not pleased by obedience due to external compulsion. Rather, what what does God want? What is he after? He wants your heart. He wants your pure heart's devotion to him. The Old Testament law was not given to make people pleasing to God. The law was given to show people how displeasing they already are 
to God because, because everyone breaks the law. No one keeps God's law perfectly. All fall short. All are condemned by his law. The law was meant to reveal this with the hopes that people would then in turn be humbled, be broken by their sin, and they would turn to God just for mercy, for grace, for salvation because they fall short. And when people do that, God always hears those cries. He always answers those cries with his salvation. A few people in the Old Testament got that right. A few people learned the lesson. They, they knew, like King David, what God really wanted. And it wasn't just heartless obedience. That's why David writes in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, he says to God, For, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering." The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Wait, I thought God commanded these offerings and sacrifices. Well, yeah, he did. But David realized that the heart behind the sacrifice is more important to God. And David knew that you do all the offerings you want. want. If your heart isn't right, God doesn't care. Your, your offerings mean nothing to God if your heart isn't right behind them. So get your heart right first, then make your offerings. That's how he ends the psalm. Anyway, that was, that's, that's what life was like under the law of Moses. Historically, it seems that just a few Jews got life under the law right. They were convicted of their sin by the law. They were driven to God for mercy, seeking his forgiveness, his salvation. But the rest, the majority, it seems, continued to live under the burden of the law, motivated to obedience just by a fear of judgment, external compulsion. And they mistakenly came to believe that they were accepted by God if they just kept his laws. Forget the heart, forget the motivation. So long as you keep the letter of the law, you're good to go. God will accept you, you're good, and you'll be in his presence, right? But this is how the Old Testament got turned into a religion of legalism. It took the law totally in the wrong direction. You have to understand, God's law was never given as an answer to man's sin problem. It was only given to reveal man's sin problem. And actually, the law was given, the law of Moses was given to make it worse. That's what Paul says in Romans 5.20. He says the law came in so that transgressions would increase. It's like, it's like we all have small cancerous tumors living inside of us that we don't know about, undetectable. But then the law comes along and it activates the cancer, causes it to spread. Pretty soon our whole bodies are filled up with cancer on the inside. And is that a bad thing? Well, I mean, yeah, obviously. But in a way, it's good because when the cancer spreads you come to realize just how sick you are. Before, you didn't think you had a problem. You didn't think you were sick, so you didn't seek a doctor. But now, you realize you're on death's door, so you go run to a doctor. You're desperate in need of a doctor, of a cure, of some help. And this is where the good news comes in. Because if you get that spiritually, if you see how bad you are spiritually before God, well, the good news is that the doctor's in, and the doctor has a cure. Jesus, the great physician of souls, he can cure your sin problem instantly. 
He can forgive you all that sin inside. He can change you. And that's what Romans 5.20 continues to say. He says the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is why Jesus came. That's why it's the good news. The grace and the mercy that people so desperately need, which can't be found in the law, is found in Jesus. All people are condemned by God's laws, whether it's the law written on their heart or for Jews, the law of Moses. But Jesus came to purchase our forgiveness for those sins through his sacrificial death on the cross. He died in our place to pay our debt. You broke God's law. You sinned. You incurred the penalty. But Jesus paid the price for you so you can be forgiven. You can be redeemed. And that's good news. That's, that's good news. I trust, I trust you know that. I trust and hope you've heard that before. You know that. You've placed your trust in Christ as your Savior. And when you do that, when, when, you, when you are humbled by your sin, you ask the Lord for forgiveness. You, you run to Christ as your Lord and Savior for a new life. God promises some things. He promises to hear that prayer. He promises to forgive you, to save you. He promises to change you and to make you new. I trust you know that as well. And a lot of things change when you, when you come to this understanding and you come to Christ and salvation. One thing that changes is freedom, meaning you're freed from the law. We touched on this last week, but now I've got to take it a little bit further now. When you come to Christ, you you become a Christian because you've placed your faith in him as Lord and Savior. He says you are freed from the law. You've probably heard that before, but do you really know what that means to be free from the law? What does it mean to be free from the law? Well, for one, we are free from the demands of the law. What did the law demand? Well, it demands perfect righteousness. We, we don't do that. We can't do that. But Jesus provided that for us. We're also free from the penalty of the law. Well, what's the penalty of the law? Well, the law comes with the penalty of death, eternal death, for everyone who breaks it. And that's us. But Jesus paid that penalty for us. So in Jesus, we are freed from the demands of the law and the penalty of the law. And so we can say, just like Paul says in Romans 8, 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, we're no longer under the law of Moses. The law is no longer our standard. Jesus fulfilled the law, its demands, its penalty, And God no longer holds us accountable to the law of Moses. We are free from observing it or keeping it. That doesn't make us lawless, like we talked about last week. And we are now guided by the law of Christ, the law of love. But don't don't think of the law of Christ like the law of Moses. It's not just that we have a new set of rules. That's how a lot of people think of Christianity. Okay, Jesus came, we're called Christians now, so now we have these commandments we've got to live by. No, that, that's not what it's like at all. Christianity is not a religion of rules. 
Jesus didn't bring us a new set of rules to follow so that we could be made right with God. That's what every other religion teaches. But that We've already made the point that no person can be, can be made right with God through law-keeping. We are condemned by the law. Rather, Christianity alone teaches that you are made right with God for one reason, and it is grace. Not the law, but God's own grace. His favor, His mercy, and love. And so that's why Christianity alone is not a religion of rules. It's a religion of relationship. It's a religion of relationship. Our faith centers on a living and active relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, by faith, and all comes by grace. God makes you right with Him just for free, by His grace, based on your faith in Christ, apart from the law, apart from the works of the law. And so now in Christ, in your redemption, you're free from the law. And so Galatians 5.1 says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom. This is why it should come as no surprise to you that the law of Christ in the New Testament is also called the law of liberty. You're free now. You're free from the law and its demands, its penalty. The New Testament law, the law of Christ, it's really not like a law at all. It's not about following some list of commands. Here's your do's and don'ts. Do this. You'll be a good Christian. Pat yourself on the back. God will accept you. It's not what it's about. You're accepted by grace through Christ's finished work. And now you're free. You're free to live a life of joy and peace with God apart from sin. I know the concepts of freedom and liberty can scare some people in the sense that, you know, if you give people freedom, freedom from the law, its penalty, its demands, it seems like that would go south pretty fast. It seems like if people were really free, they would turn very sinful and wicked and selfish real quick. It's like, again, with kids, Just think about this. What would happen if you told your kids for one week they're free to do whatever they wanted to do? No rules, no penalty, no punishment, no enforcement, nothing. They're just totally free for a whole week. What would they do? They would go crazy. There would be chaos. They wouldn't go to school. That's a given. They wouldn't go to school. Stay home, watch TV, play games all day. That They really would eat candy all day. The house would be a mess. Nothing would get cleaned up. It would be chaos. It sounds like freedom is a bad idea. And you know what? It's no different for adults. And for us adults in America, if all the laws were lifted for one week, there was no law, no penalty, no enforcement, what would happen? It'd be chaos. And we actually, we see this happen during natural disasters. It's like a temporary anarchy. And what do people do? Otherwise, good people, they start rioting and looting and sometimes even killing each other. I mean, it sounds like freedom only results in more lawlessness. So this doesn't sound like a good thing. But you are failing to understand the nature of freedom in Christ. It's a little different. You see, it's true. If God took away his law with its demands and penalty from unbelievers, they would descend into chaos. Their sinful hearts would just run free. But not so with Christians. And why not? Well, because of one thing, the new birth. New birth, it's a total game changer. Very real changes happen to you when you come to a genuine saving faith in Christ. God makes you born again, he says. He regenerates you. 
You become a new creature. This comes with a new inclination, new desires. Before, you wanted to sin. You loved sin. Now, you're still a sinner, but you hate sin. You're in the fight. You fight against it. Also, God gives you His Holy Spirit to dwell with you, to empower you to put off sin, to put on righteousness. I mean, everything changes. The result is entirely new life. It's a new life, and it comes with a new goal in life. The true believer, what should be your number one goal in life? This is like, this is like a litmus test for people to see if they, they really know the Lord. If you've really been saved by His grace, it's a no-brainer what your goal is. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, for example, which says, Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. That's it. That's our life goal. That's our life ambition. To please the Lord. To glorify Him. To honor Him. This becomes the heart cry for every true believer. And this becomes the reason that we do everything. Do you get that? It's not about the law anymore. We're not under the law. We don't need the law. We have something much more powerful and effective than an external law. We have an internal spirit working through a new heart. And that's way more powerful and effective than the law. You don't need a list of commands anymore if you're truly saved. We have God's own spirit dwelling within us. It doesn't mean we're lawless. It doesn't mean we're free to sin. Of course not. But we are guided, guided and driven to honoring God from the inside out. That's pretty powerful. So back to our question. Hopefully now you see a little bit more. Why do we do all the things we do? Now, as Christians, there are still a lot of things that God wants us to do. Yeah. But why do we do them? The answer is not because we're commanded. The answer is not because it's the law and we have to obey. The answer is not because we're obliged. The answer is not because we fear judgment. Rather, we do all these things because they're pleasing to God. And in our new hearts, that's something we want to do. We do it because we want to do it. We want to please hearts. And only the born-again heart will really want to do these things. It is our ambition from the inside out to be pleasing to to him. That's the reason behind everything in the Christian life. All of our actions are derived from love. Love for God, which extends into love for one another. And that, by the way, is that's the law of Christ. That's all it is. It's the law of Christ. Love God, love others. Galatians 5, 13, 14 says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For, listen to this, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And which one word do you think fulfills the whole law? It love. It's the law of love now. So now we don't need the law of Moses to tell us what to do. We have new hearts desiring what is right. We have God's word clarifying what is right. We have the Holy Spirit prompting what is right. All we have to do is walk by the Spirit and we will do what is right. 
Now, so far we've already covered a lot. I know, once again, it's probably more than you bargained for on a Sunday morning. I'm unloading a lot of stuff on you. Basically, I just gave you a crash course on the law and the gospel from Romans and Galatians. And it actually can be a, a difficult thing to grasp sometimes. But to be honest, I've never heard this myself taught in a church setting. But it needs to be taught in a church setting because so many Christians, they don't know what the Bible says about the law and the gospel and how these relate to our life today. And like I said earlier, when you study this, it provides the key that unlocks the basis for the entire Christian life. You get this stuff right, the law and the gospel. It helps you understand that Christianity is not a religion of rules like all the rest. Every religion in the world, just think about that, every religion, it's all about having a list of things you do and you can't do, sometimes some crazy things, things you have to do in order to be on God's good side, in order to get to heaven, in order to be blessed. Just do these things and you'll go to heaven. They're all religion of works, laws. But biblical Christianity is totally different. It alone understands there's no such thing as being good enough for God. Rather, it's all about a relationship, a relationship of faith in Christ by grace, a transforming relationship, a relationship that results in you becoming new. In Christ, not only are you made right with God just by grace, but then you are changed. You become new from the inside out. And we as Christians now, we have our practices, sure. We go to church, read the Bible, we pray, we sing, baptism, communion, evangelism, so on. But now we don't do these things out of obligation, duty, fear of judgment. We don't even do them because they're commanded. Ultimately, we do them because they're pleasing to God. And our new redeemed hearts want to please Him. That's it. Now, if you get all this, if you're tracking, I know it's been a lot, but if you're tracking with me, now it becomes very easy to tell you why you should give according to the New Testament, right? And technically, we set out this morning to to study what the New Testament has to say about giving. But so far, we haven't studied giving at all. But now, hopefully, you see why. Why I took the time to labor and rebuild the foundation for the entire Christian life. Because if you get that, giving, it's like a no-brainer. It's like, well, it's obvious why you should give. What's our motivation for doing all the things we do? Well, now you know. And giving is no different. No exception. It's the same thing. Each week, many Christians give money to their church. And why do they do it? Or why should they do it? Well, the same as everything. Not out of compulsion. Not because we're commanded. Not because it's some law. Not because we're obligated. In the New Testament... New covenant giving, it's totally unlike tithing in this regard. Rather, it's all about free will giving. That's what it's all about. You give because you want to. You give from your heart's desire because it pleases the Lord. It's an expression of love for God and for others. So when I tell you that the New Testament says nothing about tithing, about some obligatory 10%, that should make sense to you now. Like You'd expect it not to say that because that's not what it's about. I'm going to tell you the New Testament gives you no commands about how much to give, how often to give. That should make sense because it's not about that. The New Testament is not silent on giving. There's a lot of instruction, a lot of wisdom for us to keep in mind, of course. But you're going to see it's all about giving to God 
a free will offering from your heart. And you can't regulate a free will offering because then it's not no longer a free will offering. It has to be your own will that chooses to do this. You should give because you want to. It's meant to be an expression of your love for God and for others. Your heart must be behind it. Otherwise, you give all the money you want, God doesn't care. You have to realize giving is not about the money. God doesn't need your money. What is God after? It's not your wallet. He's after your your heart. He's after you, your life. And how much does God want of you? You think he's satisfied with 10%? He wants 100% of you. And we give generously because we want to. It's a reflection that God has 100% of us. Our lives are his. And that includes our money. As a Christian, I trust you don't need a command not to steal. You understand stealing It's dishonoring to God. It's unloving toward others. So I'm not going to steal. You don't need a law telling you not to steal. You just wouldn't do it. The same thing for giving. You don't need a command telling you to give. Giving honors God. It spreads the gospel. It helps others in need. It's a huge expression of love. So why should you give? Well, it's a no-brainer. You give joyfully, entirely of your own will, from the heart, because it pleases God and helps others. And you won't stop at 10% either. You understand this. I mean, what's going to stop you at 10%? If you have a greater love for God and others, you just want to give. If you have the ability, knock yourself out. So real quick, we see this perspective on giving acted out in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Just give you a little few verses here. You know, technically, I could have started here. I could have just jumped right into these verses. But I really wanted to make sure you have the foundation of the whole Christian life settled in your mind. Because now this should make perfect sense. Paul starts off and he commends the churches of Macedonia for their giving. So just listen along. Second Corinthians 8, verse 1. Paul says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great deal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. You know, at the time Paul is writing that the Christians in Jerusalem were going through a rough time. They were extremely poor. They were persecuted. So Paul, he takes up an offering on their behalf. It's not a tithe. There's no command. Nobody is forced to give. He doesn't tell them to give. He's just collecting their offering, their free will offering. Of course, true believers who have received so much from God, they're happy to give. And so they did. The Macedonian Christians, that's like Greece, they were happy to give, even though they themselves were poor and afflicted. Usually when people are poor and going through a hard time, they're looking for excuses not to give. But these Christians, they were so overflowing with the love of the Lord and the joy of the Lord that they happily gave to meet the needs of others. And they gave a lot. They weren't forced. They weren't guilted. They weren't required to give. Instead, they begged Paul for the privilege of contributing to the needs of others. 
And so Paul, as he continues, he commends the Macedonians for their faithful giving. Then he turns to the Corinthians, you know, 2 Corinthians, and he urges them to do the same. But even here, there's no command. Look what he says, or listen to what he says, verse 8 of chapter 8. He tells the Corinthians, I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And he says in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7, Regarding giving, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I hope you get it. It's, it's all about the heart. God wants your heart. Not 10%, but 100%. And giving is meant to be a reflection of that. New Testament giving, it, it's about giving to the Lord of our own free will because we love Him. And we love others. And the money goes to furthering the work of God and to helping those in need. So we happily give. And perhaps you can even see now some of the dangers behind the modern practice of tithing, of taking the tithing into today. Look, if you, if you purpose in your own heart to give 10%, great, that's fine. Nothing wrong with that number. But if you think you are bound by God's law to give 10%, or if you impose that upon others, then you're in the wrong. And for, for some people, 10% may be, may be wrong for them. And for those who are extremely rich, they often give 10%. Because if you're making you know, 200K a year, 10% is like nothing. You're still left with 180,000, and that's, that's a lot of money. But tithing can actually trick them into thinking that God is satisfied with their bare minimum. When in reality, they could easily give more if their heart so desired. There are more needs. At the same time, for those who are extremely poor... Tithing can be a real burden, an undue burden. If you're a family of four living off of 30000 a year, that's hard enough, let alone having to cough up another 10%. But many people, they feel so guilted into giving, which should never be the case, as if they're still living under the burden of the law. I'll read you a quick testimonial of a lady, a couple. They wrote to a pastor asking for some advice on tithing. And it's a perfect example of how damaging tithing can be when people don't understand it, when, when people get giving wrong. So listen to this. This lady writes in, she says, quote, My husband and I have been Christians for a long time. We faithfully and gratefully tithe for many years. But when severe financial problems caused partly by life-threatening ill health and the rest by poor financial choices occurred, we wavered. We started frantically trying to pay day-to-day living expenses that were piling up and tragically abandoned our tithing out of a misguided sense of responsibility. We put our responsibility to our earthly debtors above our responsibility to obey God. We are ashamed. Some doctrinal confusion from various pastors' opinions also entered into the mix, and we have remained confused about it ever since. We finally went bankrupt, lost our home, and are living with relatives. The ill health in both of us is still present, but stable, and we are still earning. We are elderly. Here's our question. We intend to resume tithing, but is it acceptable to ask forgiveness for having robbed God for several years and start anew from here? Or is it more proper to pay more than 
in, a, in an attempt to repay our tithe debt to God as best we can. Please understand that our motives aren't intended to sound stingy. We just don't know whether we are putting ourselves under unnecessary bondage with trying to catch up a, a huge debt by paying many years of unpaid tithes. Thank you for your help and helping us discover the correct wisdom in this matter. End quote. If you're paying attention, you caught that. How completely overwhelmed was this couple by just guilt? The sense of religious guilt. Oh, we skipped so many years of paying tithes. Now we're under this huge debt to God. We've robbed God for all these years. And now they're, they're overwhelmed with guilt. It doesn't need to be like this. It shouldn't be like this. And not just forgiving for everything you do in the Christian life. How often do you feel guilty because you didn't read your Bible today? I'm not saying you shouldn't read your Bible every day. No, I think you should. Morning, evening, it's a wonderful practice. You should do it, though, because you want to, not because you're on a checklist and you feel like a bad Christian if you don't. You understand we're not under the burden of the law for anything. Any of our practices, it's not about the law. And same thing with this couple forgiving. They are not under such a burden. Should you give? Yeah, you should. Does God want you to give? He certainly does. Giving is very important to God. But if you don't get the heart right, it's of no use. Even if you gave a million dollars, it would make you no closer to God. Only when God has your heart does your offering then become a form of true worship. So like David said, first get your heart right, then give your offering. God still wants the offering. He still uses it. He still calls upon us upon it uh, for it. But get your heart right first. We worship and not only God who's given us so much, that's why we give. And let's always remember that. Well, there's still more to say. Last week, I kind of took the approach of tearing down the house of tithing in your mind and taking the bulldozer to the whole concept of tithing in the church today. Today, it's been different, I understand. But I've been, instead of rebuilding the house, I first wanted to lay the foundation for you. The foundation really for everything in the Christian life and certainly giving. But there is still more to say. There's a lot of wisdom and instruction on giving in the New Testament. And so next week, we will come back and hopefully finish this off and now rebuild fully the house of giving, so to speak, in your mind from the New Testament. But don't, don't forget what we learned today. It'll serve you well, not just for giving, but for ev- everything. That God wants the heart. to ser- Seek him and serve him from the heart. And we would do all things to please him. Let's remember that now and let's pray. Father in heaven, we we, we do cherish you and praise you and remember you now. And we do want to seek you and serve you from the heart, from our own heart. A heart that has been redeemed, a heart that has been changed by, by Christ. Only the redeemed heart will thank and praise you and remember you. And we do that. We want to remember what you've done for us through Christ, our Savior, our Lord, whom you gave to die on the cross, rise from the dead, to pay for our sins, to forgive us our debt, and to make us new. In Christ we inherit an eternal life. Lord, we hear these words all the time, but may they never fall on cold hearts. May may these truths reinvigorate our hearts afresh every time we hear them and lead us to worship. Lead us to a reverence of you or remembrance of you a high regard for you, and a true worship. Lord, I pray that we are 
deeply motivated by, by love, love for you, love for others, and all that we do. Keep us free from dead religion. We don't want to be those just going through the motions, coming to church, reading our Bible, singing a few songs, and just living our lives apart from you. Rather, Lord, infuse a love for you and for others in, in all of our ways that we can truly reflect your grace and, and honor you in, in literally everything we do. Only then can we truly eat, drink, do all things to the glory of God. And that's our heart's desire now that we know Christ. We thank you so much for all that we have in him. May we live accordingly and give you the honor that you deserve. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.